You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 151 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Human and Cosmic Thought, a revised translation by Charles Davy, four lectures. This is Lecture 3, given on the 22nd of January, 1914. Yesterday I tried to set forth those world outlooks which are possible for man, so possible that certain valid proofs can be produced for the correctness of each of them in a certain realm. For anyone who is not concerned to weld together into a single system all that he has been in a position to observe and reflect upon in a certain limited domain, and then sets out to seek proofs for it, but who wants to penetrate into the truth of the world, it is important to realize that broad-mindedness is necessary because twelve typical varieties of world outlook are actually possible for the mind of man. For the moment we need not go into the transitional ones. If one wants to come really to the truth, then one must try clearly to understand the significance of these twelve typical varieties, must endeavor to recognize for what domain of existence one or other variety holds the best key. If we let these twelve varieties pass once again before our mind's eye, EYE, as we did yesterday, then we find that they are materialism, sensationalism, phenomenalism, realism, dynamism, monadism, spiritism, pneumatism, psychism, idealism, rationalism, and mathematism. Now, in the actual field of human searching after truth, it is unfortunate that individual minds, individual personalities, always incline to let one or the other of these varieties have the upper hand, with the result that different epochs develop one-sided outlooks, which then work back on the people living at that time. We had better arrange the twelve world outlooks in the form of a circle, see page 50, and quietly observe them. They are possible, and one must know them. They really stand in such a relation to one another that they form a mental copy of the zodiac with which we are now so well acquainted. As the sun apparently passes through the zodiac, and as other planets apparently do the same, so it is possible for the human soul to pass through a mental circle which embraces twelve world pictures, Indeed, one can even bring the characteristics of these pictures into connection with the individual signs of the zodiac, and this is in no wise arbitrary. For between the individual signs of the zodiac and the earth, there really is a connection similar to that between the twelve world outlooks and the human soul. I mean this in the following sense. We could say that there is an easily understandable relation between, for example, the sign Aries, and the earth. But when the sun, Saturn, or Mercury are so placed that from the earth they are seen in the sign Aries, 
then influence is different from what it is when they are seen in the sign Leo. Thus the effect which comes to us out of the cosmos from the different planets varies according as the individual planets stand in one or other of the zodiacal signs. In the case of the human soul, it is even easier to recognize the effects of these twelve, quote, mental zodiacal signs, close quote. The German is Geistes Tierkreisbilder. There are souls who have the tendency to receive a given influence on their inner life, on their scientific, philosophic, or other mental proclivities, so that their souls are open to be illuminated, as it were, by idealism. Other souls are open to be shown upon by materialism, others by sensationalism. A man is not a sensationalist, materialist, spiritist, or pneumatist, because this or that world outlook is, and can be seen to be, correct, but because his soul is so conditioned that it is predominantly influenced by the respective mental zodiacal sign. Thus in the twelve mental zodiacal signs we have something that can lead us to a deep insight into the way in which human world outlooks arise and can help us to see far into the reasons why, on the one hand, men dispute about world outlooks, and why, on the other hand, they ought not to dispute, but would do much better to understand why it happens that people have different world outlooks. How, in spite of this, it may be necessary for certain epochs strongly to oppose the trend of this or the other world outlook, we shall have to explain in the next lecture. What I have said so far refers to the molding of human thought by the spiritual cosmos of the twelve zodiacal signs, which form, as it were, our spiritual horizon. But there is still something else that determines human world outlooks. You will best understand this if I first of all show you the following. A man can be so attuned in his soul for the present it is immaterial, by which of these twelve mental zodiacal signs his soul is illuminated, that the soul mood expressed in the whole configuration of his world outlook can be de designated as gnosis. A man is a Gnostic when his disposition is such that he gets to know the things of the world not through the senses, but through certain cognitional forces in the soul itself. A man can be a Gnostic and at the same time have a certain inclination to be illuminated by, for example, the mental zodiacal sign that we have here called spiritism. Then his Gnosticism will have a deeply illuminated insight into the relationships of the spiritual worlds. But a man can also be, for example, a Gnostic of idealism. Then he will have a special proclivity for seeing clearly the ideals of mankind and the ideas of the world. Thus there can be a difference between two men who are both idealists. One man will be an idealistic enthusiast who always has the word ideal, ideal, ideal on his lips, but does not know much about idealism. He lacks the faculty for conjuring up ideals in sharp outline before his inner sight. The other man not only speaks of idealism, but knows how to picture the ideals clearly in his soul. 
the latter who inwardly grasps idealism quite concretely, as intensely as a man grasps external things with his hand, is a Gnostic in the domain of idealism. Thus one could say that he is basically a Gnostic, but is specially illuminated by the mental zodiacal sign of idealism. There are also persons who are specially illuminated by the world outlook sign of realism. They go through the world in such a way that their whole mode of perceiving and encountering the world enables them to say much, very much, to others about the world. They are neither spiritists nor idealists. They are quite ordinary realists. They are equipped to have really fine perceptions of the external reality around them and of the intrinsic qualities of things. They are Gnostics, genuine Gnostics, only they are Gnostics of realism. There are such Gnostics of realism, and spiritists or idealists are often not Gnostics of realism at all. We can indeed find that people who call themselves good theosophists, they go through a picture gallery and understand nothing about it whereas others who are not theosophists at all but are Gnostics of realism are able to make an abundance of significant comments on it, because with their whole personality they are in touch with the reality of the things they see. Or, again, many theosophists go out into the country and are unable to grasp, with their whole souls, anything of the greatness and sublimity of nature. They are not Gnostics of realism. There are also Gnostics of materialism. Certainly they are strange Gnostics, but quite in the sense in which there are Gnostics of realism, there can be Gnostics of materialism. They are persons who have feeling and perception only for all that is material. Persons who try to get to know what the material is by coming into direct contact with it, like the dog who sniffs at substances and tries to get to know them intimately in that way, and who really is, in regard to material things, an excellent Gnostic. One can be a Gnostic in connection with all twelve world outlook signs. Hence, if we want to put Gnosis in its right place, we must draw a circle, and the whole circle signifies that the Gnosis can move round through all twelve world outlook signs. Just as a planet goes through all twelve signs of the zodiac, so can the Gnosis pass through the twelve world outlook signs. Certainly the Gnosis will render the greatest service for the healing of souls when the Gnostic frame of mind is applied to Spiritism. One might say that Gnosis is thoroughly at home in Spiritism. That is its true home. In the other world outlook signs, it is outside its home. Logically speaking, one is not justified in saying that there could not be a materialistic gnosis. The pedants of concepts and ideas can settle such knotty points more easily than the sound logicians, who have a somewhat more complicated task. One might say, for example, quote, I will call nothing gnosis except what penetrates into the spirit. Close quote. That is an arbitrary attitude with regard to concepts as arbitrary as if one were to say, quote, So far I have seen violets only in Austria. Therefore I call violets only flowers that grow in Austria and have a violet color, nothing else. Close quote. 
Logically, it is just as impossible to say that there is gnosis only in the world outlook sign of spiritism. For gnosis is a, in quotes, planet, which passes through all the mental constellations. There is another world outlook mood. Here I speak of mood, whereas otherwise I speak of signs or pictures. Of late it has been thought that one could more easily become acquainted, and yet here even the easy is difficult, with this second mood, because its representative in the constellation of idealism is Hegel. But this special mood in which Hegel looks at the world need not be in the constellation of idealism, for it too can pass through all the constellations. It is the world outlook of logicism. The special mark of logicism consists in its enabling the soul to connect thoughts, concepts, and ideas with one another. As when, in looking at an organism, one comes from the eyes to the nose and the mouth and regards them as all belonging to each other, so Hegel arranges all the concepts that he can lay hold of into a great concept organism, a logical concept organism. Hegel was simply able to seek out everything in the world that can be found as thought, to link together thought with thought, and to make an organism of it, logicism. One can develop logicism in the constellation of idealism, as Hegel did. One can develop it, as Fichte did, in the constellation of psychism. And one can develop it in other constellations. Logicism is again something that passes like a planet through the twelve zodiacal signs. There is a third mood of the soul expressed in world outlooks. We can study this in Schopenhauer, for example. Whereas the soul of Hegel, when he looked out upon the world, was so attuned that with him everything conceptual takes the form of logicism, Schopenhauer lays hold of everything in the soul that pertains to the character of will. The forces of nature, the hardness of a stone, have this character for him. The whole of reality is a manifestation of will. This arises from the particular disposition of his soul. This outlook can once more be regarded as a planet which passes through all twelve zodiacal signs. I will call this world outlook voluntarism. Schopenhauer was a voluntarist, and in his soul he was so constituted that he laid himself open to the influence of the mental constellation of psychism. Thus arose the peculiar Schopenhauerian metaphysics of the will, voluntarism in the mental constellation of psychism. Let us suppose that someone is a voluntarist with a special inclination toward the constellation of monadism. Then he would not, like Schopenhauer, take as basis of the universe a unified soul, which is really will, in quotes. He would take many monads, which are, however, will entities. This world of monadic voluntarism has been developed most beautifully, ingeniously, and I might say in the most inward manner, by the Austrian philosophic poet Hammerling. Whence came the peculiar teaching that you find in Hammerling's title Atomistics of the Will? It arose because his soul was attuned to voluntarism, while he came under the mental constellation of monadism.
If we had the time, we could mention examples for each soul mood in each constellation. They are to be found in the world. Another special mood is not at all prone to ponder whether behind the phenomena there is still this or that, as is done by the Gnostic mood or by the idealistic or voluntary moods, but which simply says, quote, I will incorporate into my world conception whatever I meet with in the world, whatever shows itself to me externally. Close quote. One can do this in all domains, that is, through all mental constellations. One can do it as a materialist who accepts only what he encounters externally. One can also do it as spiritist. A man who has this mood will not trouble himself to seek for a special connection behind the phenomena. He lets things approach and waits for whatever comes from them. This mood we can call empiricism. Empiricism signifies a soul mood which simply accepts whatever experience may offer. Through all twelve constellations, one can be an empiricist, a man with a world conception based on experience. Empiricism is the fourth psychic mood, which can go through all twelve constellations. One can equally well develop a mood which is not satisfied with immediate experience, as in empiricism, so that one feels, through and through, as an inner necessity, a mood which says, man is placed in the world. In his soul he experiences something about the world that he cannot experience externally. Only there, in that inner realm, does the world unveil its secrets. One may look all round about and yet see nothing of the mysteries which the world includes. Someone, imbued with a mood of this kind, can often say, quote, Of what help to me is the gnosis that takes pains to struggle up to a kind of vision? The things of the external world that one can look upon, they cannot show me the truth. How does logicism help me to a world picture? In logicism, the nature of the world does not express itself. What help is there in speculations about the will? It merely leads us away from looking into the depths of our own soul. And into those depths one does not look when the soul wills, but on the contrary, just when by surrendering itself it is without will. Close quote. Voluntarism, therefore, is not the mood that I mean here. Neither is empiricism, the mere looking upon and listening to experience and events. But when the soul has become quiet and seeks inwardly for the divine light, this soul mood can be called mysticism. Again, one can be a mystic through all the twelve mental constellations. It would certainly not be specially favorable if one were a mystic of materialism, that is, if one experienced inwardly not the mental, the spiritual, but the material. For a mystic of materialism is really he who has acquired a specially fine perception of how one feels when one enjoys this or that substance. It is somewhat different if one imbibes the juice of this plant or the other and then waits to see what happens to one's organism. One thus grows together with matter in one's experience. One becomes a mystic of matter. This can even become an awakening, in quotes, for life. 
so that one follows up how one substance or another drawn from this or that plant works upon the organism, affecting particularly this or that organ. And so to be a mystic of materialism is a precondition for investigating individual substances in respect of their healing powers. One can be a mystic in the world of matter, and one can be a mystic of idealism. An ordinary idealist or a Gnostic idealist is not a mystic of idealism. A mystic of idealism is one who has, above all, the possibility in his own soul of bringing out from its hidden sources the ideals of humanity, of feeling them as something divine, and of placing them in that light before the soul. We have an example of the mystic of idealism in Meister Eckhart. Now, the soul may be so attuned that it cannot become aware of what may arise from within itself and appear as the real inner solution of the riddle of the universe. Such a soul may rather be so attuned that it will say to itself, quote, Yes, in the world there is something behind all things, and also behind my own personality and being, so far as I perceive this being, but I cannot be a mystic. The mystic believes that this something behind flows into his soul. I do not feel it flow into my soul. I only feel it must be there outside. In this mood, a person presupposes that outside his soul and beyond anything his soul can experience, the essential being of things lies hidden. But he does not suppose that this essential nature of things can flow into his soul, as does the mystic. A person who takes this standpoint is a transcendentalist. Perhaps that is the best word for it. He accepts that the essence of a thing is transcendent, but that it does not enter into the soul, hence transcendentalism. The transcendentalist has the feeling, quote, When I perceive things, their nature approaches me, but I do not perceive it. It hides behind but it approaches me. Close quote. Now it is possible for a man, given all his perceptions and powers of cognition, to thrust away the nature of things still further than the transcendentalist does. He can say, quote, The essential nature of things is beyond the range of ordinary human knowledge. Close quote. The transcendentalist says, quote, If with your eyes you see red and blue, then the essential being of the thing is not in the red or blue, but lies hidden behind it. You must use your eyes, then you can get to the essential being of the thing. It lies behind. Quote. But the mood I now have in mind will not accept transcendentalism. On the contrary, it says, quote, One may experience red or blue, or this or that sound, ever so intensely. Nothing of this expresses the hidden being of the thing. My perception never makes contact with this hidden being. Quote. Anyone who speaks in this way speaks very much as we do when we take the standpoint that in external sense appearance, in Maya, the essential nature of things does not find expression. We should be transcendentalists if we said, quote, The world is spread out all around us, and this world everywhere proclaims its essential being. Close quote. This we do not say. We say, quote, this world is maya, and one must seek the inner being of things by another way than through external sense perception and the ordinary means of cognition, close quote. Occultism, the psychic mood, 
of occultism. Again, one can be an occultist throughout all the mental zodiacal signs. One can even be a thorough occultist of materialism. Yes, the rationally minded scientists of the present day are all occultists of materialism, for they talk of atoms, in quotes. But if they are not irrational, it will never occur to them to declare that with any kind of method one can come to the atom. The atom remains in the occult. It is only that they do not like to be called occultists, but they are so in the fullest sense of the word. Apart from the seven world outlooks I have drawn here, there can be no others, only transitions from one to another. Thus we must not only distinguish twelve various shades of world outlook, which are at rest round the circle, so to speak, but we must recognize that in each of the shades a quite special mood of the human soul is possible. From this you can see how immensely varied are the outlooks open to human personalities. One can specially cultivate each of these seven world outlook moods, and each of them can exist in one or other shade. What I have just depicted is actually the spiritual correlative of what we find externally in the world as the relations between the signs of the zodiac and the planets, the seven planets familiar in spiritual science. Thus we have an external picture, not invented, but standing out there in the cosmos, for the relations of our seven world outlook moods to our twelve shades of world outlook. We shall have the right feeling for this picture if we contemplate it in the following manner. Let us begin with idealism, and let us mark it with the mental zodiacal sign of Aries. In like manner, let us mark rationalism as Taurus, mathematism as Gemini, materialism as Cancer, sensationalism as Leo, phenomenalism as Virgo, realism as Libra, dynamism as Scorpio, monadism as Sagittarius, spiritism as Capricorn, pneumatism as Aquarius, and psychism as Pisces. The relations which exist spatially between the individual zodiacal signs are actually present between these shades of world outlook and the realm of spirit. And the relations which are entered into by the planets as they follow their orbits through the zodiac correspond to the relations which the seven world outlook moods enter into, so that we can feel Gnosticism as Saturn, Logicism as Jupiter, Voluntarism as Mars, Empiricism as Sun, Mysticism as Venus, Transcendentalism as Mercury, and Occultism as Moon. See diagram page 50. Even in the external pictures, although the main thing is that the innermost connections correspond, you will find something similar. The moon remains occult, invisible when it is new moon. It must have the light of the sun brought to it, just as occult things remain occult until, through meditation, concentration, and so on, the powers of the soul rise up and illuminate them. A person who goes through the world and relies only on the sun who accepts only what the sun illuminates, is an empiricist. A person who reflects on what the sun illuminates and retains the thoughts 
after the sun has set, is no longer an empiricist, because he no longer depends upon the sun. Sun, in quotes, is the symbol of empiricism. I might take all this further, but we have only four periods to spend on this important subject, and for the present I must leave you to look for more exact connections, either throughout your own thinking or through other investigations. The connections are not difficult to find when the model has been given. Broad-mindedness is all too seldom sought. Anyone really in earnest about truth would have to be able to represent the twelve shades of world outlook in his soul. He would have to know in terms of his own experience what it means to be a Gnostic, a logician, a voluntarist, an empiricist, a mystic, a transcendentalist, an occultist. All this must be gone through experimentally by anyone who wants to penetrate into the secrets of the universe according to the ideas of spiritual science. Even if what you will find in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds does not exactly fit in with this account, it is really depicted only from other points of view and can lead us into the single moods which are here designated as the Gnostic mood, the Jupiter mood, and so on. Often a man is so one-sided that he lets himself be influenced by only one constellation, by one mood. We find this particularly in great men. Thus, for example, Hammerling is an out-and-out monadist or a monadologistic voluntarist. Schopenhauer is a pronounced voluntaristic psychist. It is precisely great men who have so adjusted their souls that their world outlook mood stands in a definite spiritual constellation. Other people get on much more easily with the different standpoints, as they are called. But it can also happen that men are stimulated from various sides in reaching their world outlook, or for what they place before themselves as world outlook. The someone may be a good logician, but his logical mood stands in the constellation of sensationalism. He can at the same time be a good empiricist, but his empirical mood stands in the constellation of mathematism. This may happen. When it does happen, a quite definite world outlook is produced. Just at the present time we have an example of the outlook that comes about through someone having his sun, in the spiritual sense, in Gemini, and his Jupiter in Leo. Such a man is Wundt, and all the details in the philosophical writings of Wundt can be grasped when the secret of his special psychic configuration has been penetrated. The effect is especially good when a person has experienced, by way of exercises, the various psychic moods, occultism, transcendentalism, mysticism, empiricism, voluntarism, logicism, gnosis, so that he can conjure them up in his mind and feel all their effects at once and can then place all these moods together in the constellation of phenomenalism in Virgo. Then there actually comes before him as phenomena and with a quite special magnificence that which can be unveiled for him in a remarkable way as the content of his world picture. When in the same way the individual world outlook moods are brought one after another in relation to another constellation, 
then it is not so good. Hence, in many ancient mystery schools, just this mood, with all the soul planets standing in the spiritual constellation of Virgo, was induced in the pupils, because it was through this that they could most easily fathom the world. They grasped the phenomena, but they grasped them, in quotes, gnostically. They were in a position to pass behind the thought phenomena, but they had no crude experience of the will. That would happen only if the soul mood of voluntarism were placed in Scorpio. In short, by means of the constellation given through the world outlook moods, the planetary element, and through the nuances connected with the spiritual zodiac, the world picture which a person carries with him through a given incarnation is called forth. But there is one more thing. These world pictures, they have many nuances if you reckon with all their combinations, are modified yet again by possessing quite definite tones. But we have only three tones to distinguish. All world pictures, all combinations which arise in this manner, can appear in one of three ways. First, they can be theistic, so that what appears in the soul as tone must be called theism, or In contrast to theism, there may be a soul tone that we must call intuitionism. Theism arises when a person clings to all that is external in order to find his God, when he seeks his God in the external. The ancient Hebrew monotheism was a particularly, in quotes, theistic world outlook. Intuitionism arises when a person seeks his world picture especially through intuitive flashes from his inner depths. And there is a third tone, naturalism. These three psychic tones are reflected in the cosmos, and their relation to one another in the soul of man is exactly like that of sun, moon, and earth, so that theism corresponds to the sun, the sun being here considered as a fixed star, intuitionism to the moon, and naturalism to the earth. If we transpose the entities here designated as sun, moon, and earth into the spiritual, then a man who goes beyond the phenomena of the world and says, When I look around, then God, who fills the world, reveals himself to me in everything. Or a man who stands up when he comes into the rays of the sun. They are theists. A man who is content to study the details of natural phenomena without going beyond them, and equally a man who pays no attention to the sun, but only to its effects on the earth, he is a naturalist. A man who seeks for the best, guided by his intuitions, he is like the intuitive poet whose soul is stirred by the mild silvery glance of the moon to sing its praises. Just as one can bring moonlight into connection with imagination, so the occultist, the intuitionist, as we mean him here, must be brought into relation with the moon. Lastly, there is a special thing. It occurs only in a single case, when a person, taking all the world pictures to some extent, restricts himself only to what he can experience on or around or in himself. That is anthropomorphism. Such a person corresponds to the man who observes the earth on its own account, 
independently of its being shone upon by the sun, the moon, or anything else. Just as we can consider the earth for itself alone, so also with regard to world outlooks, we can reckon only with what, as men, we can find in ourselves. So does a widespread anthropomorphism arise in the world. If one goes out beyond man in himself, as one must go out to sun and moon for an explanation of the phenomenon of the earth, something that present-day science does not do, then one comes to recognize three different things, theism, intuitionism, and naturalism, side by side, and each with its justification. For it is not by insisting on one of these tones, but by letting them sound together, that one arrives at the truth. And just as our intimate corporeal relation with sun, moon, and earth is placed in the midst of the seven planets, so anthropomorphism is the world outlook nearest to the harmony that can sound forth from theism, intuitionism, and naturalism. While this harmony, again, is closest to the conjoined effect of the seven psychic moods. And these seven moods are shaded according to the twelve signs of the zodiac. You see, it is not true to talk in terms of one cosmic conception, but of twelve plus seven equals nineteen, plus three equals twenty-two, plus one equals twenty-three. Cosmic conceptions which all have their justification. We have twenty-three legitimate names for cosmic conceptions. But all the rest can arise from the fact that the corresponding planets pass through the twelve spiritual signs of the encircling zodiac. And now try, from what has been explained, to enter into the task confronting spiritual science, the task of acting as peacemaker among the various world outlooks. The way to peace is to realize that the world outlooks conjointly in their reciprocal action on one another can be in a certain sense explained, but that they cannot lead into the inner nature of truth if they remain one-sided. One must experience in oneself the truth value of the different world outlooks in order, if one may say so, to be in agreement with truth. Just as you can picture to yourselves the physical cosmos, the zodiac, the planetary system, sun, moon, and earth, the three together, and the earth on its own account, so you can think of a spiritual universe, anthropomorphism, theism, intuitionism, naturalism, gnosis, logicism, voluntarism, empiricism, mysticism, transcendentalism, occultism, and all this moving round through the twelve spiritual zodiacal signs. All this does exist, only it exists spiritually. As truly as the physical cosmos exists physically, so truly does this other universe exist spiritually. In that half of the brain which is found by the anatomist, and of which one may say that it is shaped like a half-hemisphere, those activities of the spiritual cosmos which proceed from the upper nuances are specially operative. On the other hand, there is a part of the brain which is visible only when one observes the etheric body, and this is specially influenced 
by the lower part of the spiritual cosmos. Diagrams pages 39 and 50, and we're on page 55, and there's a diagram here as well. But how is it with this influencing? Let us say of someone that with his logicism he is placed in sensationalism, and that with his empiricism he is placed in mathematism. The resulting forces then work into his brain, so that the upper part of his brain is specially active and dominates the rest. Countless varieties of brain activity arise from the fact that the brain swims, as it were, in the spiritual cosmos, and its forces work into the brain in the way we have been able to describe. The brains of men are as varied in kind as all the possible combinations that can spring from this spiritual cosmos. The lower part of the spiritual cosmos does not act on the physical brain at all, but on the etheric brain. The best impression one can retain from the whole subject would lead one to say, it opens out for me a feeling for the immensity of the world, for the qualitatively sublime in the world, for the possibility that man can exist in endless variety in this world. Truly, if we consider only this, we can already say to ourselves, there is no lack of varied possibilities open to us for the different incarnations that we have to go through on earth. And one can also feel sure that anyone who looks at the world in this light will be impelled to say, quote, Ah, how grand, how rich the world is! What happiness it is to go on and on, taking part in ways ever more varied, in its existence, its activities, its endeavors. Close quote. End of Lecture 3